Hello and welcome back to Haddingtonshire Histories. In this episode, we are delighted to have Dr. Aaron Johnston, who is a local author, historian and director at the Scottish Battlefields Trust, chat about an exhibition entitled Hey Johnny Cope, which he is showcasing at the John Gray Centre Museum. Let's listen to Aaron speak about his research and thoughts on the Jacobites at the Battle of Preston Pans, Prince Charlie, and even the Outlander TV series. Hello, Aaron. Welcome to Haddington Shire Histories. And Thank you for making time to speak with us about your research and about the exhibition that you have put up at the JGC Museum in Haddington entitled Hey Johnny Cope. So first of all, Aaron, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, your background? Well, uh, I'm a historian, a freelance historian, and I'm a trustee of the Battle of Preston Pan's 1745 Heritage Trust. Uh, and the director of the Scottish Battlefields Trust. So I spend a lot of my time researching and examining battlefield sites around Scotland and the campaigns that go with them, but also trying to sort of get onto the ground and get people to understand the experience of, of being in an army in the past and the impacts that these events had on those who took part and the communities around the areas where they happened. So, so that's, that's really the thrust of my work. Wow, that's very interesting. Um, it does cover quite a bit. Yeah, it gives me it gives me a pretty broad remit, especially with the Scottish Battlefields Trust. That's a national, nationwide remit across Scotland. But really, my my specialism is is the Jacobite Rising of seventeen forty five and forty six, uh, which is why for for over twelve years now I've been involved with the the trust at, at Preston Pans Battlefield. Excellent, and and this is also why we have invited you to come and speak with us. So tell me, what inspired you to? to produce this exhibition, and how long did you take to produce it? Well, one of the fascinating things about Preston Pans particularly is that because it, I think because it was a sort of victory of the underdog, nobody thought that the Jacobites in 1745 had much of a chance, an untested commander, small untested army fighting against the seasoned professionals, and yet somehow the Jacobites win, and not only win, but win quickly and dramatically. And so there was a lot of interest immediately after the battle had, had stopped being fought, essentially, in working out what had happened, how it had happened. And so uh, a lot of people started talking about it, writing about it, uh, theorising about it, but also started singing about it and telling stories about it. And, uh, and so there was this amazing sort of flowering of, of cultural outputs that the battle um, stimulated on people who supported both sides and people who didn't support particularly either. And so I've often thought of the cultural legacy of the Battle of Preston Pans being a really significant part of why we're still interested in it. Uh, and uh, the song Hey Johnny Cope is obviously one of the most, uh, one of the most famous uh, and it was written within, within days of the battle. So really it was about Looking at the, as we came up to the 275th anniversary of the battle last September, thinking about, you know, well, we know the Jacobites lost the war, so obviously the Battle of Preston Pans didn't really change their fortunes, even though they won it. Um, but that cultural legacy still continues, and I wanted to just look at that story and, and think about how the story of the battle had been told over uh, the last 275 years. Excellent. Um, so one of the questions that... Uh 
has been posed to us uh, quite often, uh, particularly by primary school pupils, is why the Jacobites are called Jacobites. Um, and, you know, the joke uh, used to be, oh, it's got nothing to do with Jacob's biscuits, <laughs> we used to tell them. So why are they called Jacobites? Well, you have to know your Latin. That's mm. the trick. Uh, so the, the Jacobites, who were led by Prince Charlie, were trying to get Prince Charlie's father on the throne. And his father was James Francis Stuart. Uh, and the Latin for James is Jacobus. So they're fighting for Jacobus Rex. They're fighting for mm. King James. Mm -hmm. And they're the uh, second generation of them as well, because uh, James himself, uh, his father, had been the last Stuart King, also called James. So the Jacobites were those who supported Jacobus, King James. Okay, Aaron, one of the features that I noted and uh, particularly liked about this exhibition is the Gaelic uh, language version of the description panels. Why did you decide to include these panels in Gaelic? Well, the Battle of Preston Pans 1745 Heritage Trust made a commitment a few years ago uh, that it was going to start uh, as much as it possibly could, uh, doing its exhibitions and its interpretation uh, in both English and in, in Gaelic. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason behind that was simply because the vast majority of the Jacobite soldiers that fought at Preston Pans were Gaelic speakers. Uh, so the, the nature of the Jacobite army changes during the course of, of 1745 and 6. And by the time of the Battle of Culloden, it's not primarily a Gaelic-speaking army. But at Preston Pans, it is. It's an almost exclusively uh, Highland army. Uh, and for most of the rank and file, Gaelic would have been their, their natural first language. Uh, and so we wanted to, to basically pay, uh, uh, pay homage to, to that fact and that part of the heritage. Uh, and, and so as well as, as well as putting the exhibition into, uh, into Gaelic as well as English, uh, we're looking at, um, at cultural workshops and trying to work in how we can understand the culture of the men who were fighting at the battle. Uh, and uh, um, the, we've got uh, the road signs on the battlefield at Preston Pans directing you around to the walking trail. They're all in, uh, in both languages as well. Uh, and so we're just trying to, to shine a light on that part of the, of the, of the story of the battle campaign. That's, that's excellent. Do you speak it? Unfortunately, I don't have the Gaelic myself, no. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and obviously, you know, here in East Lothian, there, there isn't a big, a big audience of, of Gaelic mm. speakers, although it is rising, I'm told. Um, but as I say, it's, it's, about, it's about the significance of, of that language and that culture that goes with it to the people who were here in 1745 Absolutely. and telling that part of the story. Absolutely. Um, wonderful. What are uh, some of the l more fascinating or, or perhaps lesser known facts or, or relics or items in this exhibition? Well, it's quite an eclectic mix of things, mm -hmm. and, and, and that, was, that was deliberate. We really wanted to look, try and get lots of different media in there and, and lots of different ways in which the story's been told. Uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a number of different things in there that, that I think um, you know, are, are of great interest. The, the, one of the themes that runs all the way through the exhibition is, is Walter Scott. He crops up right the way through because his influence is, is so strong in, in the way that the story of the battle has been told. 
Uh, and it's not just through people who read Waverley, uh, and for those who haven't, you must, uh, but the, the Battle of Press and Pans is vividly described uh, in quite considerable detail. And Walter Scott knew the battlefield personally, so he knew what he was talking about, um, even if he doesn't get everything uh, textbook correct. No. But nevertheless, um, it's not just about the people who read it and were influenced by Scott directly. It's about the large number of illustrations that were made to go with the popularity of, te- uh, of Scott's books, and then all of the artists or engravers uh, or even uh, other writers who had picked up that, uh, that narrative from Scott and were inspired by it. And part of that is, is, is why um, Colonel James Gardner keeps cropping up in, in artworks and, and, and songs. And that's not just down to Scott because it was already in the 18th century uh, a very popular theme. Uh, and that comes from... Uh, from Gardner's friend uh, Philip Doddridge, who was a, a minister in England, uh, who wrote a biography of Gardner uh, that sold many editions through the 18th century, um, published his sermon about Gardner after he'd heard of, of, of his death at Preston Pans. And so Gardner, who'd incidentally died at the battlefield within sight of his own house, because he was a Preston Pans resident, uh, became a focal point of, of how the story was told. I think largely because it was a story that could be told by... Uh, the people who were um, pro-government and therefore it wasn't a Jacobite story that you were telling and so it was um, uh, safer to tell it sooner uh, than some of the Jacobite tales. Yes. Uh, and the Gardner story therefore um, is, is, is quite important. We did a whole case in the exhibition on, on Gardner uh, with early editions of, of, the, of the Dodderidge book uh, but also right through to uh, um, a, a vinyl album cover from the 1970s yes, that I shows saw that. Colonel Gardner's death uh, from a 19th century image on, on the front cover. So, so the way that, that that story has been picked up by artists and then how the artworks have then been picked up later um, in, in other um, cultural forms as well. So, uh, so I think those, those two elements, Colonel Gardner and that running influence of Walter Scott. Absolutely. Um, so in normal times, uh, where, where are these objects usually kept and, and who do they actually belong to? Well, uh, all of the items in the exhibition, um, apart from a small fragment of the, the famous thorn tree under which um, Colonel Gardner uh, was found mortally wounded, there are two pieces of the thorn tree in the case, um, and, uh, but all of those, uh, those items belong to uh, the Battle of Preston Pans Heritage mm-hmm. Trust, so they're all from the Trust's collection. And until now, the Trust hasn't had a permanent exhibition space to, to show off the things that it has. I see. Uh, and so this is a really great opportunity to see them all um, uh, sort of showcased like this. In the future, going forward, the Trust uh, is in the process of developing Preston Pan's Town Hall uh, as, a, as a museum space, uh, which will allow us to display a lot of the items in that collection going forwards as well. Um, but, uh, but perhaps not in the sort of thematic way that they're shown in this, this particular exhibition that isn't trying to tell the story of the, the military tactics. It's just trying to look at the, the cultural inspirations that have come from the battle. That's- the exhibition also features some tapestry. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about the ones on display in this exhibition, uh, as well as the origins of the Scottish diaspora tapestry and its connection to Preston Pans? Yeah, so there's, there's three panels in the exhibition which are taken out of the Scottish diaspora tapestry. 
Uh, and this was a tapestry that was made um, uh, in the run-up to, to the homecoming uh, celebrations in, in 2014. And the idea of that tapestry was that uh, a set of, of, of illustrations would be made telling the stories of um, Scots uh, who had travelled around the world, uh, who'd migrated or who'd been in exile or were explorers uh, over the course of centuries of, of, of Scottish migration. Uh, and uh, and obviously there is a huge range of themes over the, the 305 panels that are in, in that exhibition. Um, but there are also quite a few of them with, with Jacobite connections. And uh, the, the connections can be quite surprising. There's a, a panel in, in the Swedish set, for example, about the, the, the Scots in Gothenburg who helped transport Jacobites out of Scotland after Culloden. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the three that are on display uh, uh, as part of this exhibition uh, all connect to, to the Royal Stuarts. Uh, so there's uh, a panel which uh, shows uh, King James, or the would-be King James, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the old pretender to his opponents, uh, who had a court uh, that he'd inherited from his father uh, at Saint-Germain, just outside Paris, which was uh, loaned to them by the French king. Um, and then the court went a bit itinerant uh, as the 18th century went on before settling in Rome. And the second panel uh, shows uh, King James and his family, so his, his two boys, his wife, uh, uh, and uh, some members of their, of their staff and household. Uh, and that commemorates the Stuart Court once it moved to Rome. Uh, and, uh, and the third panel, uh, which uh, was stitched in, uh, in France, that shows uh, some of the locations in Brittany, uh, from which Prince Charlie set off on his journey back to Scotland. So the, the reason I chose those three panels was because they show the, the, the movement of the, the Stuart fortunes from yes. that first exile location in France, uh, then to, to the, uh, Prince Charlie's household, uh, um, his uh, childhood home in, in Rome, and then Prince Charlie setting off from Brittany uh, to come back and, and try and restore the family to the throne. Excellent. Very, very apt, actually. Um, now, respective um, individuals and scholars will have varying thoughts uh, and answers to my next question. But uh, in your opinion, what is the most significant legacy from this period of time? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a hugely complex question. It is, <laughs> and, it is. And, and I think the fact that you, you said yourself that there are so many different views is, in fact, uh, probably the most important point about it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most talked about, most controversial episodes in Scotland's long and talked about and controversial history. history. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that, that so fascinates me about this, uh, this particular conflict is that it, it still excites not only a lot of debate and interest, but passionate debate and interest. And it's still quite divisive in a lot of, uh, in a lot of discussions. Uh, and people have very strong and entrenched uh, views. Indeed. Uh, and historians like me are there to try and, and cut through some of that, go back to the sources, go back to the accounts, uh, and to try and piece together, regardless of, uh, of what political um, uh, perspective you might be approaching the subject from, and everybody d- does it inadvertently, uh, they come from a perspective, um, is to try and see what, what, what really were the motivations of the people on the ground and the, and. Uh, what made people come out of their homes in 1745, or indeed what made them not come out of their homes in 1745 exactly. uh, and fight for these causes. And of course, the events of 1745 don't happen in isolation. 
They're the uh, last chapter, if you like, in a, in a much longer um, series of conflicts, um, a protracted cause. Yeah. You can track its, its, its sources back a hundred years or more. Uh, and, uh, and so it is, it is a really important part of the way that um, the whole nature and structure of, mm-hmm. of the, the United Kingdom um, in the widest context emerges and, and it's part in the, in the global stage as well. Uh, so uh, it's something that everybody thinks they know something about, mm-hmm. um, but not everybody necessarily really understands, uh, which is why we've got to keep talking. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I'm also interested to know if you have a favourite character from the time of the Jacobites. Um, so who is your favourite historical figure from this period and why? Well, it's a... Uh, it- in many ways, it's a sort of predictably boring answer. But I mean, I personally, I have always been fascinated by Charles Edward Stuart, um, and I, I think that's largely down to um, the fact that I I grew up in Derby, um, okay. in the in the the dead centre of England, uh, and that of course is where the Jacobite army turned around in seventeen forty five. It was the the high watermark, if you like, of the, of their campaign, and it's also the the location of the only statue in Britain of Prince Charlie, big equestrian bronze. Uh, and uh, as a, a young lad, uh, I saw the statue go up. I saw commemorations around the um, 250th anniversary of the, of the Rising. And uh, there's a museum uh, uh, room in the local museum about uh, Prince Charlie in Derby. I see. And an annual commemoration with pipers and wreath layings and battles, wow. um, which these days I take part in. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but watching all that and growing up with that, what I was interested in was this... Uh, this how this one man seemed to be the center point of all of this activity, and so much of what happened seemed to be down to um, either his strengths or his failings, uh, and so that's why I, I think I became so interested in him personally. I continue to be interested in him personally because he excites so much um, uh, different opinion, and there are those who love and those who loathe, and uh, and and that. A man whose life is very, very well documented, uh, for the most part, uh, can still cause so many differing interpretations mm-hmm. is really quite interesting. And it picks up in the, some of the themes of the exhibition as well about how the story is told, how it becomes romanticised through the 19th century. Once it becomes safe mm-hmm. to talk about Prince Charlie and look at Prince Charlie again, and, uh, and this, this tall athletic figure... Um, uh, that we see in the people who saw him and met him. Um, and then this sort of uh, slightly effeminate, um, softer figure that we see in, in some uh, 19th century romance um, is it, quite a contrast. And of course, we're still um, finding different Prince Charlies uh, today, even in the way that is, is shown in, in film and TV and books. Absolutely. Uh, even now. Absolutely. Now, one of my favourite areas of research is on women's histories. And as you know, uh, recently there seems to have been a surge in interest in women's histories for various reasons and because of various events. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about the women that were involved in the Battle of Preston Pans uh, or the surrounding areas? Yes, well, it's, it's something I'm quite conscious of because... In a lot of the ways, and it's not just with Preston Pans, it's the, 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 the subject I specialise in, um, is that a lot of the, 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 the narratives about uh, military campaigns 
in the uh, 18th century and before focused primarily on the stories of men. Uh, and that's unavoidable because at the end of the day, at a battle like Preston Patterns, there are 6,000 men fighting in the field. Um, but that's not to say that what's happening doesn't affect women and mm-hmm. doesn't involve women. Um, so th- there are some interesting um, points that you can pick up he- here in the Preston Pans campaign. For example, the way that um, th- there, are, there are women are involved in the, in the Jacobite uh, rising in all sorts of different ways. Um, but uh, sometimes they were picked up on and particularly attacked by the propaganda of the day. I'm thinking uh, initially of, of people like Jenny Cameron, mm-hmm. uh, who was supposedly there at Glenfinnan and had, had led her men out to, uh, uh, to, to send them off with the prince. Now, she didn't go off and campaign personally, uh, but the propaganda says, you yeah. know, uh, here is this, uh, this woman dressing like a man, uh, riding with Prince Charlie, a lot of innuendo yeah. um, and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of slur. None of which was true, but it was, a, it was seen as a way of trying to attack um, the cause uh, and attack Prince Charlie mm-hmm. uh, and um, the sort of loose morality of being involved in this rebellion. Um, uh, but all of that sort of disguises the role that she had actually played yeah. in, in actually influencing what, what happened with, uh, with the men that she was responsible for. And there are other examples as, w- as well. Uh, but, um, and the, the Jacobites often talk about, uh, about women in the context of, uh, of persuading, um, you know, there was a lot of talk uh, about, a lot of concern among the government circles about the Jacobites and the prince being able to, uh, to persuade the wives and the, and, and the daughters to, uh, to lean on their, and their husbands to, uh, and, and threaten their sympathies. Uh, but, uh, but what is more interesting, I think, is the little shadows that we get in the in the accounts where we suddenly spot, if you're looking closely enough, that when the British army is embarking at Aberdeen to move down to East Lothian by sea, it's embarking women too. Mm-hmm. And there are large numbers of women attached to each of the regiments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not just the wives of soldiers, but they're also um, sutlers and suppliers mm-hmm. uh, and contractors who are following uh, the army. Uh, and... Although they're not mentioned in most accounts of the battle, we know from things like those shipping lists that yes. they are there. And then you see them in uh, the crop up in, uh, for example, um, Sir John MacDonald's account of what happened at Preston Pans, and he, he was there as a Jacobite officer. And he says that um, it was the women from the British Army's camp that were first into the field after the battle to start mm. removing things of value from the bodies. Mm. And so you just get these little glimpses of, 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 uh, of, of those lives, hard lives, hard uh, lives uh, indeed, that, yeah. uh, that are being lived alongside uh, mm. the armies. And of course, this is a battle that takes place in a residential area as a, as a series of communities on all sides of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And those are the people uh, who have to deal with the aftermath of the battle, uh, particularly in terms of care of the wounded. And we know that there are wounded men uh, in houses uh, around Preston and Preston Pans and Kakenzie for weeks after the battle. Uh, and, and often we see women's names coming up again at the end of the rising when people are giving testimony to how the wounded were treated uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and you get people uh, giving evidence there as to who'd been helping who, uh, women that had been caring for, for, for soldiers that had been wounded from both sides. Uh, and, uh, and so you start to build a picture. But really, uh, in stories like this, you do have to look for that. Yes. Uh, and you do have to, to, to prize those stories out and start to build them up. Absolutely, absolutely. That's great. Um, now, I'm sure we have all heard uh, of uh, Outlander, 
the made-for-TV historical drama series. That's what it's called, historical drama series, based on Diana Gabaldon's um, novels. So the sixth season is apparently scheduled to premiere in 2022. Uh, if you've watched the series, you will know that the intro music that the production company uh, uses is the Skyboat song. Um, so have you watched the series? I have, yes. I've, I confess I've not watched all of the yeah. previous five series. <laughs> it's quite a lot, uh, but yeah. I, But I did, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, watch the early seasons because I wanted to see the portrayal of the events leading up to and, and beyond the, the, the Jacobite Rising. And, and that's where my question lies. Um, what do you think of the depiction of the Jacobites? Uh, well, not just in this series, but you, know, you were mentioning in, in other adaptations and, and works of, of fiction. Do you think they are overly romanticised? Well, there's an interesting um, contrast, I think, between how the Jacobites and many of the Jacobites are portrayed in Outlander, which I don't think you could describe as in any way romanticised. <laughs> They're pretty down and dirty and, mm. uh, and, and, and raw to the earth um, men. Um, and, and then on, on the other side of it, then you've got um, uh, portrayals like the, the, the Jacobites in, in the David Niven film in the 1940s, uh, about which there's, there's um, uh, information in the, in the exhibition, because I, I love the film. It's, it's so charmingly naive in so many ways, but, but beautifully detailed. Um, and there you have got a very romanticised portrayal of the of the naively innocent Highlanders, brave and loyal, uh, being led on this on, on this doomed expedition. Um, it's quite a different portrayal uh, to, to to Outlander. And of course, the reality with all of these things is that there are elements in there of uh, in both uh, that are real, but uh, both of them are a little bit too two dimensional. The Jacobites themselves were a hugely uh, diverse and complex and, yes. and mixed motivated bunch of, uh, of individuals, fascinating individuals, that are only brought together by this one um, uh, appearance of Prince Charlie and the fact that he binds them together for this, for this yes. cause. Yes. Um, so that's fascinating. And of course, at the head of that is the portrayal of, of Prince Charlie and his, and his senior staff themselves. Yes. Uh, and, and Prince Charlie in particular... Uh, I think is is done a disservice by Outlander. Um, he is uh, he's almost caricatured exactly as he was portrayed by Georgian propaganda. Um, he's uh, effeminate, selfish-minded, mm. um, f- foppish, um, uh, and and yes, he's there, and yes, he's he's throwing himself into the into the middle of it. Um, but um, it, it's uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, a sort of cavalier attitude around him that that isn't borne out by the evidence of those who saw him in 1745. And one of the uh, powerful things about the evidence is that it's not just the people who supported him who say positive things about Prince Charlie in 45. Uh, there's also a lot of people who are civilian onlookers who are by no means sympathetic uh, and some of them who, who are actively anti-Jacobite. Um, and they also struggle quite a lot to find criticisms of him personally and his personal behaviour and demeanour. And I think that is an interesting point because they were capable in the 18th century of seeing a difference between the person and the cause that he represented. Mm. Sometimes today we can't do that quite so effectively and tend to blend the two together. Uh, It was perfectly possible to admire the character of somebody that you were opposed to. Um, And uh, uh, and so, but of course, having taken all of that, the... um, 
the extraordinary power that Outlander has had in stimulating interest in uh, in the Jacobite Rising uh, is self-evident. Um, and uh, I only ever heard about Outlander, dare I admit, because people kept asking me about it and telling me about it. Uh, and I, I had no idea that the books had been around for such a long time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so I was, I was coming at it late to the party because people had started asking me about what I thought about the way Preston Pans was, was depicted. And I thought, Preston Pans is depicted in a new <laughs> book and it's not that new a book. Uh, and so then, of course, it came along on the, on the series as well. Yeah. And so uh, so that, that process has been great because it means there's a lot of people coming through to Preston Pans to see the battlefield uh, and uh, to go to other locations in, in East Lothian. East Lothian, uh, yes. Uh, These outlandic yeah. tours are now popular. Yes, and so I, I, I've, I've been trying hard to say, well, if you're going off to a filming location, make sure you pass the battlefield along your way mm. and you can get some of the real history that's, alongside it. That's excellent. Um, I don't know. I, I do think that... Um, I did wonder about the depiction of, of uh, Prince Charlie, and I suppose in terms of casting... Um, they wanted to focus, um, or rather, make sure that the the attention was on um, the the main protagonist, uh, the male protagonist, and and his adversary, uh, in terms of projecting the machismo mm. and uh, the glamour, and uh, you know, choosing good looking actors yes. uh, to play the role. So I I just thought if if they picked somebody with stature and and very good looks um, coming in as Prince Charlie. Uh, that it might detract from from the hero of the <laughs> yes. story. I think that's fair, and I and I think you know we do we do have to say, and it's perfectly reasonable to say, just as we would uh, with uh, with Outlander, as we would with Waverley, is yeah. that we're looking at a work of fiction yeah. that is not pretending to be anything other than a work of fiction. Uh, and, exactly. And, and so we have to have our expectations at, at that at that point. Um, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. Um, to an extent matter if sometimes um, things have to be fudged or changed or moved uh, to fit to fit the drama of what is essentially a, a, a fantasy fiction um, the the important thing is that alongside that there is an there is an accessible stream of historical research yes. uh, that allows people to follow it up themselves Um, so, on the whole, Aaron, uh, what has been the best thing that you've experienced or that you've learned uh, from producing this exhibition? I think for me, it's it's about seeing a continuum. It's about seeing um, the work that I do and my colleagues at, at the Heritage Trust at Press and Pans do as part of a process that began within minutes of the shots being f- fired at mm. the Battle of Preston Pans. And uh, putting, putting this exhibition together, uh, I wanted to bring it right up to date. And so the, the, the works uh, at the end of the exhibition are um, uh, 21st century paintings um, about the battle done by the late uh, Andrew Hillhouse, who lived on the battlefield mm-hmm. himself. Um, and uh, the, you know, the, a, lot of, a lot of work has gone in over recent years to commission new artworks, new plays, new mm-hmm. poetry. Um, that uh, that is is seen as, as as perpetuating, continuing this this cultural legacy that we were talking about earlier, and so I think for me, putting all of this into the exhibition, uh, just allowed me to step back a little bit from from mm. the work that we do and say, hey, actually, you know, this is 
a continuous process that's lasted for 275 years. I hope it's going to last for, uh, mm-hmm. for a long time since. And that's why we do things with, with schools, for example, and try to get them writing poetry inspired by the battle mm-hmm. or, 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 or designing images designed by the battle um, so that that, that process continues. Um, because um, commemorating a battle isn't, isn't about taking a side or, or celebrating it or, 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 um, Re-enactments. or, or choosing it. And, and, and even reenactments, um, you know, which, are, which are very powerful, very visual. And we've got our, our big battle reenactment um, uh, here at Press and Pans in the next week or so. Mm-hmm. All of this, all of this is, uh, is really important at, at keeping the cultural legacy visible um, and inspiring people um, to to take the lessons away, the the motto of the the, uh, the uh, if we if we can call it that of the of the Battle of Preston Pants Heritage Trust is victory, hope, and ambition. Um, and although it sounds pro-Jacobite, that's not really what it's about. It's about looking at a story about a a twenty four year old man with no previous experience, who largely through the drive of his own um, personality managed to gather people around him, persuade them to a to 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 a cause. Uh, and then against the odds at Preston Pans, they win a dramatic victory. Yes. Now, we strip away the fact that ultimately, of course, that, that, that cause and campaigns fails. But from this perspective of at this point at Preston Pans, there are some really powerful messages that you can take out of th- that story, um, uh, quite apart from anything um, p- political. And, and that's important because as the Jacobite story is so often read from the end of the book rather mm. from the beginning mm-hmm. because we're so familiar with Culloden yeah. and we, we understand what happens at the end of the story that we tend to assume therefore that it was doomed from the beginning um, but that's not what it felt like if you'd stood on Preston Pan's battlefield on the 21st of September in 1745 when quite remarkably they'd achieved this remarkable thing uh, and, uh, and if you look at the story from that end Mm-hmm. then you get a very different set of messages, I think. And that's why uh, we try to, 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 to really make sure that people understand this battle as much as they do some of the others. That's brilliant. That's absolutely smashing, Aaron. Thank you again for, for sharing your research and, and your views on this topic. But before we say goodbye, I must tell our listeners that uh, the Hey Johnny Cope exhibition is on now at the John Gray Centre Museum in Haddington until Saturday, 30th October 2021. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much. Well, that's it, folks. Look out for more fascinating chats between me and heritage experts in future episodes of Haddington Shire Histories. Thank you for listening. Thank you.